The Making of a Classic, Guinness Draft. This is a Birvana audio blog. Please forgive verbal stumbles and fumbles. And when you're done listening, consider a pint from Birvana's partners, Guinness Brewing of Dublin, Ireland and Baltimore, Maryland, Freem Family Brewers of Hood River, Oregon, and Rubens Brews of Seattle, Washington. Their support makes this site possible. Guinness is treated as a beer as often as a brewery, as if it is a single immutable force. Like Pacifico or Heineken, naming the company names the beer. For Guinness, this has never been true, though, even in the attenuated American market of decades past. The brewery makes stronger bottled extra stout, 5.6% AVB, available in the US, U.S. for decades, and its legendary, though changed, foreign extra stout, 7.5%, to name two brands that date back well over a century. When Americans, and most drinkers, think of Guinness, they call to mind the 4.2% pints with the moose-like head served at Irish pubs across the land. Guinness Draft, D-R-A-F-T, or Draft, D-R-A-U-G-H-T, as the brewery prefers, is an enduring favorite, but it's not an ancient one, at least by the brewery's own standards. Dating only to the late 1950s, it was invented to replace a truly crazy, ancient, bespoke craft beer that publicans blended at the tap. It was a modern update that changed not just the way beer was dispensed, but the beer itself. In the process, it also created what we now call Irish Stout, a beer that until then meant something entirely different. The story of Guinness Draft is one of technology, innovation, industry, and cultural transformation. Bottled and aged in vats. The Guinness Brewery is old enough that it predates Stout's Irish arrival. The earliest brewing logs dating to the late 1790s describe ale, which at the time referred to a lighter, less hoppy beer. Porter arrived first on boats from London, and Guinness began experimenting with the style in the early 1800s. The porter of that era, strong, brown, barrel-aged, and vinous, was radically different from the Guinness draft we know today. Made with rough, smoky brown malt, it started as an acrid, muddy-looking ale that couldn't have been very palatable. When breweries let it age in oak vats, however, the microbes resident in the cracks and apertures of the staves, they would one day be known as British yeast, Brettanomyces, slowly transformed it into elegant, refined beer locals likened to sherry and amontillado. It was so well regarded it went out in the bellies of ships bound for foreign ports, and one of the first places it arrived was Dublin, then still part, uh, part, of, part of Great Britain. Guinness would eventually erect an empire on the popularity of these porters. Within a few decades, however, they began making them differently than London breweries, dialing back the brown malt and using a newly invented drum-roasted black malt. Over the next century and more, the beer continued to evolve, later using a change in law to include unmalted barley, now a signature of the style, in the grist. Ireland was still controlled by the UK and subject to its laws, recall. One thing didn't change. From the early 19th century until well into the 20th, the brewery aged its strong stouts and porters in vat houses that now surround the brewery in in a vast campus of sawtooth gabled alleys. During this long period, Guinness was mainly a bottled product. Guinness's heft and complexity didn't lend itself to draft service, even in an age when beers were much stronger. In one of those very bizarre beer stories that recalls the incongruities of American distribution, Guinness sent their beer to separate companies for bottling, 
The bottlers put their names on the labels, either excluding Guinnesses or just highlighting their own, yet the quality of the product ensured that it, like the London porters that inspired Dublin's brewers, would be sent out to the far corners of the globe. The high and low. That doesn't mean the gentlemen at St. James Gate ignored their local pubs. To fast forward to the development of draft in the 1950s, Guinness had about three quarters of Dublin's market and half that was sold on draft, but delivering a pint was an ordeal. Or perhaps we could say it was a unique kind of craft endeavor. Over time, beginning as early as the late 1800s, publicans had taken to blending the beer on the spot to harness certain advantages of the vat age stuff along with fresh, lively beer. The lively stuff, the high, was actually massively carbonated and exited the tap as pure foam. Publicans drew it into pitchers or glasses and allowed it to settle. Once the head had come down to a somewhat reasonable level, they topped it off with still, fully aged beer, the low. The process took a minute or more and involved a ritual pubgoers watched as they drank. Despite the introduction of draft, it survived through the 1960s in some pubs, and fortunately, video of the whole process survives. The 1973 video below eulogized the death of Irish Porter, by then totally displaced by Stout, and the BBC presents the process beautifully. Guinness, archive, Guinness archivist Evelyn Colgan tells me, used the high and low mostly with extra Stout in the 20th century, though it too made a Porter until after the wars. And if you're interested in that uh, video, I encourage you to come to the site to see it. It's really quite remarkable. Guinness already had a large share of the Irish market, so draft beer wasn't an issue locally. The problem was Britain, where the company had just 5% share in the 1950s. Draft, or cask really, was king there, and Guinness had a new London brewery set to provide the market with all the beer it could drink, if only they could solve the draft problem. English publicans hadn't been pouring the high and low for decades as Dubliners had, and they weren't about to start. Somehow, Guinness had to figure out how to combine the high and low into kegs or casks before sending them out to pubs. Even before the Park Royal Brewery broke ground in London, Guinness introduced a patent on one solution, a keg with its own separate CO2 chamber, presumably to supercharge the carbonation the way the high did in Dublin pubs. It didn't really work, though, and it didn't go anywhere. The decades rolls, rolled along, and Guinness made no progress on the question. Fortunately, in 1951, they hired a mathematician named Michael Ash. It would take him the better part of another decade, but eventually he solved the problem and created an entirely new beer along the way. Michael's Ash Can Ash was born in Calcutta in 1927 and went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he was awarded a triple first in his studies uh, as the top scholar. He came in with a cohort of other smart people who didn't have a background in brewing. This was part of a new initiative at Guinness to encourage innovation. Ash was the first hire they made. Once he'd been trained as a brewer in Dublin, he returned to Park Royal. He worked on the riddle of how to replace the system for years. Very early on, he saw nitrogen as a possible solution. It was, quote, such an obvious gas, he told me shortly before his death in 2016. It's completely inert and it's three quarters of what we breathe. It was perfect for this purpose. The trick wasn't selecting the right gas, though. It was designing a keg that would work with it. Inside Guinness, Ash's quest was regarded as quixotic, and other brewers chided it as a daft Guinness and the ash can. Eventually, working with a keg designer, he did figure it out. There were two parts, he explained. One part where we had 
to have a reducing valve and one part for the two gases, nitrogen and CO2, high pressure, reducing valve, low pressure, flood the beer. When we drew off the beer, the gas would come through the reducing valve, giving you a constant pressure. The keg went through two designs before Guinness started sending it out to pubs, rushing at the end to get the project launched by 1959, the brewery's 200th anniversary. Had he been trained as a brewer, Ash might have approached it differently. But for Ash, the question became an intellectual riddle. Guinness fiddled at the margins with the draft problem from 1932 until he got there, and then he set about solving it the way a mathematician would solve any problem. Yet because he was not a brewer, he wasn't as concerned with how the beer might change in order to go into mass production for draft. Dublin's high and low draft beer was not built for modernity in any real way, but certainly not for a brewery that wanted to sell millions of barrels of draft beer in Irish pubs around the world. In order to create a dispense system that created a creamy pint, Guinness had to forego blending, and they did it by ditching the old barrel-aged still portion of the two threads. Guinness is a famously secretive, famously secretive brewery, and how they did this and when, whether it was phased in or started entirely with the ash cans, I have never been able to learn. In any case, draft transformed the with the draft transformed with the introduction of nitrogen dispense and never looked back. Irish Stout Reborn. The date on the bottle says 1759, and drinkers are quick to assume the Irish stout they know has been around a long, long time. Few styles have such a narrow window for expression or such specific guidelines with respect to process, ingredient, and serving. The Guinness Brewery has always been one of the most visited sites in Ireland, and all the ritual and mystery surrounding the beer seems as ancient as St. Patrick's Cathedral. Of course, it was all born in the 50s and 60s. In fact, all those old rituals of serving were holdovers from the old high and low process. The initial pour and the wait for the beer to settle recalls dispensing a glass of foam. The top-off echoes adding the still beer. Guinness understood the powers of ritual and myth and encouraged them to swirl around this new beer. They knew pub-goers loved the theater of this old pour, the anticipation. Because preparing a beer this way fell to the skill of the publican, the quality of each pour varied. Customers prized the perfect pint, and that notion is something Guinness has highlighted for decades. In the 62 years since it debuted, Guinness Draft quit cosplaying a classic and became one. Although the beer is different than it once was, and because it is so common, we sometimes forget how distinctive it actually is, and how important it was in those long decades when insipid lagers killed off most ales. The roasted barley offers a blast of coffee-like bitterness, and the spicy hops add their own layer of herbal bite. The yeast is more difficult to identify amid those flavors, but it's there if you look. And of course, the nitrogen is one of the most important and distinctive developments in beer history. For the past several decades, through incredible changes in the brewing industry and culture itself, Guinness has protected draft like the crown jewels. Even though the beer didn't change, the people around it did. In the 60s and 70s, particularly outside Ireland, Guinness became an ambassador for its home country and a cultural artifact. In the 1980s and 90s, it stood as one of the few extant examples of an authentic, characterful ale. In the aughts, it slid from beer geek favor, replaced by more intense ales, the more intense ales it helped inspire. And now, Guinness finds itself back on trend. It was low-cal before that was cool, and is ideal for sessions, a beer that defined a lifestyle eons before that concept existed. 
but it's also a mighty mite of flavor in its flyweight class, something other breweries have struggled to accomplish. And it has earned the respect of fans, even the gimlet-eyed, unromantic beer geeks who inhabit Twitter. Guinness makes a few stouts, and now, as it contends with craft beer, most other styles as well. Yet through it all, Guinness has mostly meant draft. It is one of the few beers even non-beer people know, and a testament to how to build a flagship that lasts. There are, a few cer- there are a few certainties in this world, but I expect it to be around another 62 years, at least. <laughs>